Would you guys rise while I read from the Word of God, please? I'm reading John 15, 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from you, apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. Good morning, everybody. So in the ancient world, they had this myth about a guy named Antaeus. And Antaeus was unique because he was the greatest wrestler in the world. He lived in Libya in North Africa, and if anybody wanted to pass through there, he would challenge them to a wrestling match. And if you couldn't defeat him, you could not pass until you paid him large sums of money. Well, Antaeus was wreaking havoc on this road, and so there was a hero named Hercules, or as the Greeks called him, Heracles. And he was going by that road, and one of his labors laid on the other side, and so he had to wrestle this guy, Antaeus, to get to where he was going. And as you probably know, Hercules was supposed to be the strongest man in the world. He's similar to our Samson story in the book of Judges. Strong, manly, but he got whooped when he came up against Antaeus. And so he's gathering himself, and he's thinking he's never been beaten in a wrestling match before, and he goes again and again. Antaeus pins him to the ground, you cannot pass. So he begins to think to himself, what is it that I know about this guy? Well, they believed that Antaeus's mother was Gaia, the earth goddess. And what Hercules realized was, as long as he's close to his mama, he can never be defeated. 
In fact, as long as his feet were on the earth, and the closer he got to the earth, the stronger he got. And so in those days, just like now in wrestling, the the goal was to pin the person on the ground. So every time he would get him down, he would get stronger, and he would get right back up. And so what he realized was you can't beat him if his feet are on the ground. So what he ended up doing was picking him up over his head until he let him pass. The story in John today is that story. You are strong when you're close to your father. That's the message. If you stay close to your father, if you stay close to your savior, if you walk by the spirit, you will never be defeated. That's it. That's the message. If you take one thing away from this morning, abide in me, Jesus says, you will never be defeated. The more you get down, the stronger you will be by the Spirit. Now, why would Jesus say this? In this passage in John, we're leading up to Easter, and we've been concentrating as a church on this one question. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked his disciples that at the gates of hell. He says, who do you say that I am? And it's not just, who do you say that I am? Who, Who would you give as an answer for who Jesus is? If somebody followed you around for a week, who would they say that you think Jesus is? If somebody looked at your life, what would they say about Jesus just from watching you? Well, in the Gospel of John, there are seven answers that Jesus gives to this question, so I thought that's a pretty good place to start with who Jesus is, is these seven I am statements. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the door for the sheep. I am the way, the truth, and the life. On Easter morning, we're going to be looking at the statement in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who comes to me will live even though he dies. And in John 15, we actually get the last I am statement that Jesus makes. I am the true vine. This is kind of a summary of all the other statements. I am the one source of your life and sustenance and joy. I am the one opportunity for you to bear fruit in your life. So starting in chapter 13, Jesus has one last conversation with his disciples. And this is a pretty cool moment if you think about it. Jesus knows he's about to die, and he knows he has this Thursday evening with his disciples, and he decides there's a few things I want you guys to know before I go to my death. And so starting in 13, all the way through the end of 17, Jesus is giving this long speech about here's what you gotta know when Jesus goes away. And at the end of chapter 14, which 14.6 is where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He talks about the Holy Spirit coming. At 14.31, he says, let us go from here. And we know from the following chapters that they are beginning to walk across the city of Jerusalem, out the east side, up to Jesus' favorite place to pray, the Mount of Olives. Now, if you take this route from the upper room where they were having the Last Supper, out the east side, you walk right in front of the entrance to the temple. And as Jesus is walking along this route, you would have looked up, and at the very top of the temple entrance, there would have been a vine. And it would have been gilded with gold and ensconced with pomegranates. It was a message to everybody that Israel is the true vine. And you see all over the Old Testament that Israel is pictured this way. In Isaiah chapter 5, it says, the Lord planted a vineyard, and he cleared out all the stones, and he put all the a wall around it, and he got it good soil, and he expected it to bear fruit, because that's what vines do. Vines bear fruit, and when he came back, it says he didn't find good fruit, he found stink fruit, 
That's what it literally says in the Hebrew. He found stink fruit in his garden. Well, all the prophets come back to this theme. Israel was supposed to be a vine that bore fruit to the nations. And I want to remind you guys, the whole point of Israel is, is, is the promise to Abraham, through you, I will bless all the nations. But what Israel thought was, we've got all these blessings, this must be for us. We're God's chosen people. We have to enjoy God's blessing. And so they were actually not the blessing of the world. They were a blessing to themselves. They were so internal. The vine got so ingrown and so nasty that Jesus says, if you're in me and you're not bearing fruit, you'll be cut off and thrown into the fire. Because what good is a vine that doesn't bear any fruit? What good is a vine if it doesn't do what it was supposed to do. And so Jesus is walking by and he points out, and I just love how much of Jesus' teaching are these simple object lessons. You see that vine up there? I'm the true vine. Abide in me and you'll bear fruit. What he's saying here is abide in me and you'll do what you were created to do, which is bless the world because of the fruit that God is going to bring about in your life. Now, there's a lot to what Jesus is saying here. This is just how Jesus was a masterful teacher. He could say something so simple, I'm the good shepherd. And we could spend a lifetime trying to apply all of that to our lives. I am the vine means he is the only source of our life. We have to stay connected with him. He's the only chance we have of bearing fruit. And his father is going to prune us and make us healthy by any means possible. So the call in this passage is that you should live your life in such a way that you're attached to him. See, the temptation with these I am statements that we've been wrestling with is the I am statements are not just a statement of fact. So I am the bread of life. Okay, that's great. It's one thing to say he is the bread of life, but what do you do with bread? You eat it. <laughs> that's the application. Eat it. It's not enough to just say, isn't he a wonderful bread of life? You eat it. I'm the good shepherd. What, is it, what does a shepherd do? He leads the sheep, so you follow him. I am the true vine. What do you do with that? You stay connected to him. You stay connected to him. You organize your life in such a way that you are focused on and oriented towards and connected to Jesus. So here's the secret, he says. If I'm the vine, my father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But you're clean because of the word I've spoken to you, so abide in me. Abide in me. We don't use the word abide very much. Let's just be honest. Abide is a very biblical-sounding word. What does the word abide actually mean? It means make your lifestyle or where you live or set up your home with Jesus. It means make a dwelling with him. It means unpack your bags and stay a while with him. It's a different kind of living than the living you used to do. You used to abide in a different kingdom. You used to abide in the kingdom of darkness. And Paul says in Ephesians 2, we all did it. We all lived in such a way that we just gratified our own desires. We did what we thought was good. And actually, if you do that, you're an enemy of God. But God, because he's rich in mercy, even when we were his enemies, he made a way for us to move into his house. In chapter 15, he says, if you love me, my father and I are going to come and abide with you. This is, the Bible is a story of a family reunion. And so what the family does is they all come back to the father's house. So this is actually a different way of living than we used to live. This would be like if somebody comes to you and they said, hey, I've got the greatest deal ever for you. I'm going to take your car and I'm going to turn it into a Tesla. 
So you're not going to need that engine anymore. I'm actually going to take it out. I'm going to put a Tesla engine in there, and you're just going to charge it because gas prices are a little high right now, so I figured you would like this. And you're going to charge it up, and you're going to use it that way. And the, way, the choice that we have is, are you going to charge it, or are you going to keep going to the gas station? Now, how dumb would it be if that happened to you and you continuously went to the gas station? And you thought to yourself, this car is full. It's absolutely full on what it used to run on, and yet it's dead. That's the picture that Jesus gives. If you continue to live your life like you used to live, there's no life in it. There's no energy in it. You can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. But if you will do this new thing, living with him, you will bear fruit with him. So what does it mean to abide in him? What does it mean to abide in him? Well, the first one is abiding abiding in him means following him means following him. Now, the disciples actually asked this question at the very beginning of John. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and flip over to John chapter 1. When we first see the disciples in John 1, they're actually following a different teacher. So the, many of the disciples didn't start out as disciples of Jesus. They start out as disciples of John, John the Baptist. And they're following him because John is preaching repentance what it means to turn back to God. But John can only get them so far. And John's saying, there's actually somebody coming after me that you're going to want to follow more than me. And if you've been following along with our reading plan in in the Gospel of John, we got to the John the Baptist part, and I thought, isn't this like the best example of a leader ever? He's got all these followers. John is probably the most famous Jew in the world at this point. He has this huge following. It's a huge revival. People are coming from all over to be baptized by him. And what does he do with all of his influence and all of his power and all of his, uh, all of his notoriety? When Jesus comes on the scene, he tells his disciples, you should follow that guy. You should follow him. That's the guy I've been telling you about. He's the one to come that can actually do what you want him to do. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. That's how much greater he is than me. You should follow him. So he comes onto the scene, and if you're looking at verse 35, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he was walking by and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the disciples heard them say this. Now, the disciples don't get a lot of stuff right, but they get this right. They're like, okay, if he's the Lamb of God, we should go after him. And the disciples heard this, and they began following Jesus. And Jesus said to them, What are you seeking? And they say to him, this is really important, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Okay, the ESV doesn't do us any favors here. This word is abide. This is the same word. Where are you abiding? Where are you staying? Where are you, gonna, where are you setting up shop? Because that's where we want to be. Where are you staying? And he says, come and see. Come and see. Now, this was really common back in their day. It's not as common for us. It strikes us as very odd that somebody's just walking along the shore and you're fishing with your father in the family business. He says, follow me. And you're like, okay, I'll just leave the family business. I'll do that. But this was common for them because Jesus is a rabbi. And what you do with rabbis, if you're a disciple, is you follow them and you do everything that they do. And you actually make your life exactly like theirs. And actually, the Jews still do this today. If you see a rabbi and you see the disciples, they're wearing all the same stuff. They look the same way. They grow their beards the same way. They wear the same hats. They do everything the same. And in the rabbinical writings, they have a saying that the followers would say about their rabbi. They would say, this is Torah. I must learn it. Now, we think of the Torah as the first five books of the Bible. But the word Torah just means instruction. 
It means teaching. And it means any way you live your life after God. And so each rabbi wouldn't just have the scriptures, they would have a Torah. And that's what they call it. They say Torah. And that means the entire way that they live their life. And so when you watch your rabbi do something, you would say, maybe that's an insight into how to follow God. So I've got to do the way they do it. So even down to details, if your rabbi's walking along and he picks up a piece of grain and throws it in the side of his mouth, you pick up a piece of grain. You throw it in the side of your mouth. Why? This is Torah. I must learn it. They would do this with clothing. They would do this with mannerisms. They would do this with uh, the way that their rabbi spoke and the phrases that he used. They would say, this is Torah. I must learn it. There's actually a story of some students of a rabbi that were really kind of the overachiever kind of students. And what they did was they wanted to know everything about their rabbi. So what they did was they snuck in at night and hid under his bed. And I won't say any more than that. So the rabbi's wife was upset, as you'd imagine. And the rabbi is a little bit miffed at this. And when he finds him under there, he pulls him out and he says, what are you doing? And they say, this is Torah. I must learn it. So this was the way they lived their life. You find your rabbi, you make your life exactly like the rabbi. And so these disciples are going along and they see Jesus and they say, he's a rabbi and he calls disciples, they come after him and they say, where are you living so that we can come and be just like you? We can be just like you. And sure enough, they did. They followed him in every way they could. Now, here's the problem. Jesus is not your normal rabbi. Jesus is not like earthly rabbis in that you actually can't do all the stuff that Jesus does. And you see this in the disciples. As much as they try, they fail over and over and over again to follow Jesus. In fact, they fail at the end so spectacularly that they completely give up on being his disciples for a moment because when he gets crucified, what, is, what does Peter do? <laughs> Peter scatters. Peter's terrified. He denies him. And what do the rest of the disciples do? Even after Jesus rises from the dead and he ascends into heaven, what do the disciples do? They go back to fishing. <laughs> they go back to fishing. And Jesus comes and he appears to them and he says, okay. He restores Peter. He says, you have a job to do. And it isn't, they aren't able to do that job until something happens. We don't put enough emphasis on this in the church. Pentecost happens. Do you remember what happens at Pentecost? The promise of John 15, which we're studying this morning, is fulfilled. I will send the helper, the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he will make you just like me. When the helper comes, he'll remind you of truth. He'll guard you. He will turn your heart and your mind towards Jesus. When the helper comes, who is the spirit of truth, he will make you just like your rabbi. And what the spirit does with us is the spirit is like an anchor for our souls that holds us in the place of Christ. If you want to be like Christ, you have no chance to do it unless the Holy Spirit is changing your desires and your passion and your heart as you walk and follow him. They used to have this saying that has gotten kind of famous, be covered in the dust of your rabbi, right? Which is just such a cool mystical thing to say. But for them, it was real. If you're walking close enough behind someone to be covered in the dust that gets kicked up, then you know you're really following someone. And the question for us about abiding in Christ is he says, if you follow me, you should look like me. If you follow me, if you're following me close enough, 
People should wonder, who is your rabbi? Who are you following? People should wonder, why are you covered in all this dust? And the problem for most of us is, we like to stay kind of close, but not close enough to be covered in the dust of our rabbi. Because the dust of our rabbi actually isn't all that great most of the time. You remember what happens to Jesus at the end of his life? When they take him and everybody loves him and they crown him king and everybody lives happily ever after? No, that doesn't happen. They hate him. He's so disruptive to their way of life. He is so bent on doing things God's way and not the world's way. He is so bent on loving his enemies even to the point of death. He's so bent on shedding his own blood for his followers that he goes to the cross. And people hate him so much that they send him there. They're ready. They're chanting, your blood be on us. We'll take that because we want this man dead and out of our life. And the moment you start to get treated like that, you say, there's got to be something wrong in my spiritual life here. I'm being treated like a servant, you know, which is not very fun. And people don't really like the things I have to say. I'm not as popular as I used to be. But are you covered in the dust of your rabbi? Are you covered in the dust of your rabbi? So abiding in him means being just like him. What you see Jesus doing, the way you see him loving, particularly in this passage, we should be following him so closely that we begin to look that way. He's the vine, we're the branch. If you stay connected to him, stay right next to him, abide in him, you'll bear fruit. Now, he also says, if you abide in my word, if you abide in my word. So it's not just being close to him, it's being close to him through his word. Do you remember how John starts his gospel? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then in verse 14 it says, and the word became flesh. And the word became flesh. Have you ever heard anybody say, or maybe we've, we've all had this sense maybe at some point that, you know, you love Jesus, but there's parts of the Bible that are really hard to believe. Or it's like, I, I love the red letters of the Bible, but some of those other letters are just too hard for me to stomach. <laughs> Jesus doesn't give us that option. Every word is from the word. So we don't just believe the Bible because it's a great book. We believe the Bible because every word of it came from God, and the living word, which it testifies to, is Jesus Christ himself. They are right like this. There is no space between any word of the Bible and Jesus Christ himself. So when we want to follow Jesus, the best way to do that is to read his word, every part of it, all of the history, all of the genealogies, all of the fun parts, all the confusing parts. Every word testifies to Jesus. And we sang a hymn this morning that just captures this so well. In Come Now, Come now Found, there's a line that says, prone to wander. Right? Is there any more applicable verse in a song than that? And if you've tried to follow Jesus for any amount of time, you know this is true. Prone to wander. Man, some days you just wake up and you don't want to follow him. Some days you wake up and everything you do seems to lead you down a path that you know is away from God. But there's another line in this song that I think just is so perfect for what it means to abide in him. It says, tune my heart to sing your grace. Anybody in here play a musical instrument? So if, if you play instruments, you know that you have to tune them at all times. And if you go to church, you know this because it's usually the electric guitar guy that's tuning in the middle of the prayer, you know, ding, ding, ding. Not Josh, but many, many people are tuning in the middle of the prayer. 
And if you play the guitar for any amount of time, even just a few songs, the strings start to get slightly out of tune. Something doesn't sound quite right. And your heart is the exact same way. Your heart goes out of tune so fast. Your soul starts to go on a little bit different note, a little bit different sound, a little bit different feel immediately. And so one of the reasons that we're in the Word every day is not just to check it off our list. It's not just to do something that makes us feel good about ourselves. It's not just so that we can say we did it. It's so that every morning you can hear what the pitch is supposed to be and make your heart sound like that. So when you're in the Word each day, it's not just to learn stuff. It's to conform to it. It's to take your heart and say, something's not right here. And to wrestle with God in the sense that your quiet time shouldn't be over. And sometimes you don't have very much time, but you pray and you ask God, can you somehow, some way, tune my heart to sound like your heart? That's the purpose of having a quiet time. You read your Bible, you pray, you sing, you worship, you do whatever it takes so that by the time I leave here, I'll be in tune with what God has for me today. Seeing the world the way he sees it feeling about things the way he feels, knowing the truth about what he says about me and everybody else, tuning my heart to sing the praise and the grace of God. Now, one of the underestimated parts of abiding in the word of God is Bible memorization. Bible memorization. Now, what, what, what is this for? We're all, we're, we're all too old for Awanus badges here. We're not doing sword drills at this church. What, what could you want to do memorization for? Because throughout your day, what's going to happen is you got all tuned up in the morning, and then by like 9.30, you're like, something is off. So, this is not, you're like, there's never a more discouraging moment than you have just this amazing, great time with the Lord in the morning, and you've totally forgotten about it by 10 a.m. You know, something happens to you, somebody says something, you, something unexpected, and all of a sudden, you're like, I am so disconnected from where I was with God this morning. And I actually think one of the hardest parts of our lives is connecting the time we spend with God and the time we spend with everybody else. And that's part of Christian maturity is, can you go from one thing to another? And the way to do that, one of the greatest ways to do that is to memorize Scripture. Let me tell you, I was so convicted about this because I was listening to somebody talk about praying specific promises at certain points in your day. And it's like, I'm in a seminary, okay, I study the Bible all the time, and I trust in general promises of God. You know, you get yourself into a situation and you need something and you're like, I know somewhere it says that this is going to be all right. I know somewhere it says God loves me. The most powerful thing you can do is in that moment immediately be able to go to a place and say, I know God has promised this. God, I'm asking you, help me to believe this. Do this in my life. Make this true about me. Make this true about somebody else. That's a great prayer. Make this true about the person I'm engaging with. You got to know specific Verses, specific promises, trust those, walk by those. That's the way we tune our heart back to what God has. I'll tell you my favorite example right now, like this week and last week. And I've mentioned it in two sermons, so you know it's been on my mind. But this is the greatest example of how to do this is in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. It's like the author of Hebrews isn't just doing this, showing us how to do it. Hebrews 13, 5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For, because... God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So think about this. He has in mind, feeling kind of discontented. I'm feeling like everybody else has something that I don't have. I feel like my heart's a little bit more going after money or something that I want than it is for God. So what do I do? He reminds himself of this promise. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the end of the Gospel of Matthew. 
And so he says, I'm with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. It's all over the Old Testament. He quotes that. So why does he do that? Well, here's the connection. He says, keep your life free from that because he says, I'm with you always. So we can say, verse 6, he has said, so we can say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That process should be happening in our lives all the time. He said this, so I can say this. He said, I love you with an unfailing love. So I can say, you've given me everything I need. He said the entire world is summed up in Christ in Ephesians. Therefore, my situation is not out of his control. He says later, we're going to talk about this passage in in Romans chapter 8 later. He said the Spirit intercedes for us. Therefore, we always know that things are going to work out for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So I would challenge you guys to start memorizing those little promises. These are not big passages. These don't have to be whole books of the Bible. Just those little snippets so that when your heart is out of tune, you say, he said this, so I can say this. Tune your heart back to him. That's what abiding with him means. Now, this is where things get really interesting in this passage. So two times in the passage, and everybody's ears probably perked up a little bit when they heard this. Every time Jesus gives a command like this in this passage, he says, and so... Pray anything you want, and it will be given to you, right? And this is, this is several places in, in the New Testament, and every time you see one of these, so if you abide in me and I abide in you, this is in verse 7, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And he says that again later, and it's like, and all God's people wish for an original Greek word study to find out, surely he doesn't mean what I think he means here. Right, and you can twist this and you can do all kinds of textual backbends and try and make this mean something else. It means exactly what it says. If you're trying to love him, if you're trying to follow him, if you're trying to obey him, ask for whatever you need and it will be given to you. Now, sometimes we think that we need stuff that God doesn't think we need, right? If you've ever had unanswered prayers, <laughs> chances are you didn't need it. And if you look back, you're like, thank God for the unanswered prayers, right? God will give you everything you need for these purposes. So this verse is in different contexts, different places, but in this context, if you need something to obey him, pray it, and you'll have it. If you need something to love, that's the commandment here at the end. The commandment is to love one another. If you need something to love somebody else, pray it, and it's yours. This is not if you want something, or if, if you have something that might just be kind of nice because it would make you happier, it would make your life better. What this verse is saying As you're following him and you see some distance coming in between you, pray for anything you need to close that gap and it'll happen. Now, sometimes that happens in ways that are really unexpected. Sometimes the easiest way for God to close that gap in your life is for you to suffer. This is all over the Bible. This is, you know, Paul was a pretty close follower of Jesus and he suffered like nobody in Christian history. He suffered all the time. And so this is not one of those things where, where he's just saying carte blanche. If you have something you know, that's a little uncomfortable in your life and you pray to God to remove it, that's going to happen. Trust me. It's, this is not kind of a name it and claim it type deal where if, you, if you're just even the slightest bit uncomfortable in your Christian walk, praying God will remove it. In fact, sometimes the answer to your prayer is to make you more uncomfortable to show the gap in your life and God. Your life and where the Spirit is leading you. Whatever it takes, Lord, 
for me to follow you closer, whatever it takes for me to obey you, whatever it takes for me to love you, ask that, Jesus says. That's a prayer that God always answers. He always answers that. So we're abiding in his word daily. Make a home in his word. Now, sometimes when we pray, we actually don't know what to pray for. And this is where chapter 15 is such a beautiful chapter because it talks about even when we don't know what to do, the Spirit comes and helps us. Look at verse 26. When the Helper comes, who I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth, he will bear witness about me, and you will bear witness about me because you've been with me from the beginning. One of the most beautiful promises about abiding in Christ is in Romans chapter 8. Now, most of us think that Romans chapter 8, verse 28, is one of the greatest promises in the Bible, which it is. We know that in all things, God works for those who love him. Oh, man, isn't that amazing? And in fact, the way he promises this is so beautiful. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I happen to think that's the second greatest promise in the Bible. I think verse 32 is the greatest promise in the Bible, but that's another sermon for another time. What I want you to see this morning is why Romans 8.28 is true. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit. So we're, we're in a spot. We need God's help to follow him, to love him, to obey him. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. And I told you last week, this is one of my favorite words in the New Testament because it's this picture word. The Spirit helps us. It's this compound word that basically means picking something up with somebody else from the other side. So this is like if you're carrying a big piece of furniture or a table or something. This word means to lift together from opposite sides. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses because we don't know what to pray for like we ought. We don't, sometimes we don't know what it would take to love God. Sometimes we don't know what it would take to obey God. And so we're just saying stuff. And the Spirit is praying at the same time. And he's interceding with groanings too deep for words. You couldn't even translate this into English. It's so deep and familial and loving. Eugene Peterson describes prayer as an infant learning to speak, where it's not complete sentences yet, and it's not always coherent, but you can tell in these little words exactly what they want. That's the language of prayer. Now, for some of us, we, we get into this little we get turned around theologically. We say, well, why would we pray for this stuff when God already knows what we need? Right? Why would we pray if God already knows what we're going to pray? Why doesn't God just send it down you know, and just cut out the middleman? That would be way more convenient. Or it's hard for me to think about why I need to say something to God when he knows it. That just seems backwards. But think about this. The Spirit is praying to God. This is God talking to God. This is inner Trinitarian dialogue going on here. You think that God doesn't know what the Spirit is thinking? This is, this is crazy. There, there is no new information being transmitted between the Father and the Spirit. Because prayer is not about information, it's about relationship. In fact, the church fathers used to conceive of the Holy Spirit this way. You have the Father and you have the Son. And the way that they love each other is the Spirit. That dynamic that goes back and forth, the love that they have for one another, the trust they have for one another, that is the Spirit. And of course, we know the Spirit is more than that, but the Spirit is that relational aspect that binds our hearts to God, that binds the Trinity together. The Spirit is praying to God on our behalf. So we know that it's not about what we're praying as much as it is that we're praying. We are praying to God because we need Him. We're abiding in Him 
by praying. We are actually getting closer to him, making our home with him because we're praying to him. Now, the last thing I want to say is abiding by obeying. Abiding by obeying. So to close the loop on that, the Spirit prays for us according to the, word of, according to the will of God, and the will of God is that all things work together for good. So it's not our actions, and it's not the things that we've done for God that make Romans 8.28 true. It's the fact that his own spirit is praying beneath our prayers to make sure that God's will is done in every situation. So we know that when we pray according to the will of God, he gives us the things we need to follow him. Now, Jesus is really intent in this passage that what following looks like is obeying. What following looks like is obeying. And obeying is like one of those words you don't really like to hear at church. You know, or anywhere in your life for that matter. Nobody likes to hear the word obey. So what does it mean to obey Jesus? Well, think about the Great Commission. So at the end of Jesus' life, at the Great Commission, he says, go into all the world making disciples. And what does it mean to make a disciple? Baptize them. That's how you become a disciple. You, co- you follow him by baptism and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. The work of the church is that we would learn what it means to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. What it means to be a disciple is to obey. So we've been using the, word of abi- the words abiding, following, being close to God. All of that is what the Bible means by obeying. And the, the, the commandment to obey, he says in verse 10, keep my man- commandments and you will abide in my love just as I have kept the Father's commandments. Jesus is obeying the Father all through John and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Here's what obedience looks like in the Christian life. Bearing fruit with joy. Bearing fruit with joy. You're actually created, this is so counterintuitive for us, you're created so that your greatest joy comes from your closest obedience. If you want to have more joy in your Christian life, here's what you need to do. Obey God. Obey God. That's what it comes down to is if you are lacking joy in your life, if you are lacking a heart that's turning towards God, obey him. That's what he says right here all over this passage is it really comes down to this. Are you going to obey and have joy or are you going to do your own thing and not have joy? And obeying the commandment is wonderful because it's such a great commandment. The commandment is that you love one another. This is my commandment, verse 12, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone would lay his life down for his friends. You are my friends. Because Jesus laid his life down for us. You are my friends if you do what I command you, to love one another. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I have from my Father I have made known to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. So a few years ago, I was going to a conference, and a couple of my Crossings friends here probably know this story, but I was going to, I was going to this conference, and I, and I was going to stay with a cousin that I hadn't seen in a long time, and in the meantime, uh, a, the, my cousins had had a little girl, and I hadn't gotten to meet her yet, and so I was really excited to stay with them and get to know them and get to meet her, and so I roll in, and the way they had done things, they lived in this kind of little apartment, and they had cleared out her room, and she was staying in their room, bless them, and I was staying in her room, and it was a princess room, and anyway, when I got in there, it was right after Valentine's Day. It was like the third week of February, and so I go in, and I'm kind of looking around, and she was so excited to have a guest, and she had set everything up, and all of a sudden, I look over on this little bitty desk, and there's a mound of candy 
Valentine's candy. But in front of the candy was a sign, and the sign said, please don't eat my candy. <laughs> you know, I can just imagine how this conversation went, like, about hospitality. We have a guest coming to town. We do nice things for guests. And she's like, yeah, but there's limits, you know, on what, <laughs> what you do for guests. And so she had put, please don't touch my candy. Not just don't eat it, don't touch it. This is like Genesis 2 kind of stuff. Okay, and so I get up the next morning, and before I leave, I, we play a little bit, get to know her, and just get to see and catch up with them. So I go off for the whole day, and I come back, and that night, I look, and the sign is changed. It's scratched out, and now it says, you can have one piece. <laughs> and I thought, isn't that the most amazing picture of what it looks like when you know somebody? When you're with them and you trust them and you're, you're kind of getting to know who they are and what they're like, your heart begins to open and you begin to take your hands off of your things and share things with them. You begin, when you have life next to somebody, you start to realize who they are and what you can do to contribute to them. And you actually take your treasures and you begin to invest them in other people. And you begin to say, you can have one. And then later you're like, you know what? Everything I have is yours. That's what it means to really love someone is to say, anything I've got is yours. When you come into a home where you abide and they say, make yourself at home. That's a sign that you are living in love for one another. You're abiding together. That's what this word abide really means is we live with God in such a way that he's opened everything to us and we open everything to him. Now the greatest passage in the Bible, and probably the most familiar about abiding with God through the Spirit is in the end of Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 5, it lists off the fruit of what we used to be like in the flesh and the fruit of what it's like to walk by the Spirit, what, it's, what it means to walk with God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is like God's little pile of candy. You need these things? You want these things? Here's how you do it. Abide with me, and you will bear fruit of the Spirit everywhere. And the fruit of your life, your obedience to God, your abiding with him, all the things we just talked about, the fact that you're doing this daily, the fruit of the Spirit is the food of the church. People in here need the fruit in your life. The fruit is not for you. It's for other people. So you abide with God, and then we come together, and our gifts are shared, and the fruit of the Spirit is shared, and what God's doing in my life is shared with your life, and all of a sudden, we are all feasting together on the fruit that God's bringing because we live with him. This is a family reunion, and there's a feast at the end, and it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the body of Christ coming together to share anything we need to follow him. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing, but with me, you will bear fruit in joy. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you've set up life in such a way that following you and obeying you is the best thing. Father, that as we get closer and closer to you, as we make our lives form to your image, Lord, you expand our hearts and our souls for joy and for fruit and for love for one another. And so, Father, I pray now as we, as we worship that this is a moment that you would impress upon us what you have for us. Father, for the people that need to pray, there's something that I need to love you more. There's something I need to follow you closer. There's a place where I need to obey, and I'm terrified to do it. Lord, would you give by your spirit what we need?
to follow you, to abide with you, to be with you. Father, I ask that as we're sitting here this morning, you would bring by your spirit to mind the promises we need to believe, the ways we need to walk, the sins we need to leave behind, the people we need to invest in. Lord, I pray that you would bring to mind what you're calling us to do by your spirit. Father, we love you. Thank you for the church. Thank you for the gift of being here together. And Lord, all the things that we can't do on our own, would you give us gifts to serve each other, to build up your church? Or would you bring things out of us that you've put deep down that we didn't even know were there, but come out when we begin to love one another? Father, would you help us to treasure your son? It's in his name we pray. Amen.